0: Well, thanks, Sim. It's uh, great to have the opportunity to open up this part of God's Word. So, if we can keep it open with you, that would be really helpful. Uh, We're going to start a new series today. Uh, We've just finished uh, working our uh, our way through the previous series. And this series, we're going to be spending our time in not Ephesus, but in another town, uh, in the town of Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, depending on how you'd like to pronounce it, and it's always good to have pronunciation wars at Life Group through the week, so go for gold on that one. Uh, What we're hoping to do is to find eternal encouragement. That's what I've called the series, Eternal Encouragement. And I'd like to show you why I think that might be helpful uh, as we start this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this letter that's been preserved for us. I pray, Father, that you might open our eyes and our hearts that we might find here words of life and hope and encouragement. Strengthen us today through your word, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think uh, a little while ago, I I said to you that I had one of these when I grew up. Has anyone else, did anyone else have one of these? Yes, and and, and I think last time I mentioned it, I, I said, did anything come out of it alive? And I'm not sure if you, what your experience was like, but everything that went into my one of these died. Uh, The idea was uh, you put them in there. uh, That's the plastic spider that kind of came with it. Uh, You put them in there. That was the only thing that lived, essentially. Uh, You put them in there, and the idea is that uh, in in a contained environment, you could look at them, and you could examine them more closely. I think that was the idea of the bug capture. It wasn't supposed to be a torture chamber for small insects. It's kind of what it turned out to be. Uh, I want to think about the church in Thessalonica as a church in a bug catcher inasmuch as the pressure was piling in on this church. The question was would they survive? Would they come out of this situation, this tough pressurized situation that they found themselves in? Would they survive? Before we get to there, though, we're going to go there. We're going to have a look and find out what happened to that church. But I just want to have a think about our church, more generally, in Australia today. This was just in the last week. These are some of the things that I've noticed in the news. And maybe you've noticed them as well. And maybe you've felt the fact that the pressure is rising on the Christian church in Australia. Uh, this, one, uh, this one is not in Australia, but around the world. This, this one was incredible It was actually reported in the ABC News which I find it absolutely extraordinary, the ABC reported this, but the ABC News that the Chinese Communist Party is ready for a a crackdown on house churches in China. They're going to be putting up the pressure on those houses, house churches, so house churches are churches that meet without the government knowing that they're meeting, in houses. And it says that the Communist Party is cracking down on them. Okay, that's That's one example of where the pressure is absolutely being ramped up. And you can imagine what it might be like in China if you get arrested for leading a house church. They're not going to deal graciously with you, are they? It gets even worse if we look to the Middle East. And I'm sorry to say this to us, but I I want you to be aware of this. This this happened this week, and um, I was pretty shocked. You'll, You'll not be surprised that this wasn't in the mainstream media. Have I warned you enough? In Syria this week this was the headline I'll read it to you because it's it's probably too small for you it says Isis crucifies 11 Christian missionaries cuts fingertips off 12 year old in front of preacher father before killing them There is a church under extraordinary pressure extraordinary pressure Churches in China, under government persecution. Churches in the Middle East, where people are being executed. What does it look like here in Australia? It doesn't look like that, does it? And we can be incredibly thankful to God that it doesn't, and we should be more prayerful for the church worldwide, shouldn't we? For our brothers and sisters who are standing for God. But just this week, uh, in, I think, the way we feel pressure, in Sydney, uh, our Archbishop, uh, Glenn Davies... Uh, was in the news a a number of times. Uh, Same-sex marriage, Anglican church leaders accused a Sydney Anglican archbishop of silencing supporters. Sixty Anglican ministers from around Australia wrote a petition to a newspaper to say that our archbishop was stopping people talking about same-sex marriage in Sydney, which was patently untrue. But it never stopped it being a story in the news, uh, and then a story in the uh, evening uh, program, The Drum, on the ABC, where all the regular people line up and accuse this incredibly gracious and godly man of silencing discussion in our church in Sydney. All all I want you to see in very different ways is that the church today is under pressure. It really is. And for those of you who are standing here today who named Jesus as Lord in a way that lasts beyond Sunday, you will have felt that pressure, won't you? you have felt that pressure. So I think what we want to do is we want to have a look. Let's look in at this church in Thessalonica and find how did they survive? How did this church survive? What hope, what encouragement might, me, what, what, me, might we find, might we find, I obviously need it as well, me, me find, uh, for how to stand firm? Let's, uh, let's have a look. So let's, let's set the scene. So uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, what is a 1 Thessalonians? There's a city called Thessalonica. We want to see where it's placed. And this was a letter written to the church in Thessalonica. And it, guess, guess which letter it was? It was the first letter, so 1 Thessalonians. That's what's going on. So where is it placed? Uh, we're about 51 AD, and this letter is arguably the oldest part of the entire New Testament. This is the thing that was written first. Before the accounts of Jesus' life, this letter was written to the church in Thessalonica. So wh- where exactly is it? Well, there's Jerusalem down the bottom. Uh, there's Rome. Uh, the red outline around the outside is the Roman Empire, basically dominating the world at this point, which makes Rome the center of the universe. Okay? Uh, Jerusalem's our kind of Christian reference. Thessalonica is here uh, in Greece. If we come in a little bit uh, a little bit closer, uh, it's in a bay, uh, but that's not even the most important thing about Thessalonica. The really important thing about the placement of Thessalonica was this, uh, which is the Elgation Way, which was a road that ran uh, east to west and took you from Turkey, kind of the landmass down the bottom there, across to Rome. So you caught a boat uh, up the top here, and you could go across to Rome. So this road was the major east-west trade route that went across. Thessalonica had a harbour and was right on this trade route, which made it an absolute hub for the empire. Really important city. Okay? So that's the placement of Thessalonica. Uh, Secondly, so that's the place. Second thing we need to know about them is that they were a privileged city. Uh, What had happened was there'd been a whole bunch of wars in that Macedonian area, and in the end the Romans had conquered everyone as they kind of tended to do. And this city had said that they would stand with Rome. And had said, we'll make you our capital city. And because of your support and your loyalty, we're not going to charge you taxes in the same way we charge everyone else. We're not going to place a huge garrison of soldiers in you like we placed them in everywhere else. And we're going to let you govern the city yourselves. They were incredibly privileged, and they were very proud of the fact that they were very loyal to Rome. Being loyal to Rome meant that they were very loyal to someone who was the head of Rome, who was... Caesar. So part of the makeup of being a Thessalonian was we're proud of who we are and we are the group of people who honour the emperor. Very important. Secondly, uh, thirdly, sorry, it's worth saying that they were totally pagan. Uh, they did have a whole variety of different gods. Uh, this one here is Serapis, who was imported, if you'll believe this, from Egypt. So not only do you have Greek gods, You've then got Roman gods who've kind of come across the Elgatian Way, kind of back the other way. And then you've had gods that are imported from Egypt. So you've got this massive array of gods. And then in the midst of all of that, you've got a tendency to want to worship the emperor as a god. So that's enough gods, I think. We're able to say they were pagan. They're also a place that persecuted the early church and we heard that from the reading we had before about how Paul's journey to the church, uh, to found the church uh, in Thessalonica went. So Paul had started on uh, on his um, missionary journey in Antioch. He'd come through modern Turkey here and everywhere he went he was strengthening churches. He had a vision of a person in Macedonia calling them over, so he caught a, a boat across here to Neapolis philippi anyone got an idea of what church he founded there the philippian church fantastic he went from there down to thessalonica in thessalonica we're told uh, that he was there for four sabbath days so he preached in the jewish synagogue for four sabbath days Uh, and then if we look at that how long was he potentially there for maybe for five weeks Okay, not very long. And then, because he was preaching so powerfully that Jesus was the king, guess what happens when you say, here's a group of people who now have a new king. Who was the king in Thessalonica? Caesar. Okay, well, actually, everyone, I don't want you to worship Caesar as king anymore. We've got a new king who's Jesus. What do you think an incredibly patriotic town of people who wanted Caesar and the Roman privilege to continue would say to a group of people who are saying, we've got another king? they are going to dump on them, aren't they? And so what happened was the Jews got jealous uh, because uh, non-Jews were becoming Christians, because Jews were becoming Christians, and so a a great persecution broke out. And what that meant in practice was uh, they smuggled Paul and his friends out of the city to another place at night, Uh, called Berea, and Berea is about as far away as Lura is uh, from here. So they they thought they got far enough away, but they heard they got there, and then they sent another group after them and said, hey, you can't keep doing this disruptive stuff in Berea, and then Paul fled from there all the way down to Athens, which is where he's been wondering, how's my tiny baby church been going? Does that make sense? So that's our background, and uh, in order to find out uh, Paul is going, what, what do I do? How, what, what would you do with such a young church? So they're totally brand new little baby church. They've only just got who Jesus is. What would you do? If you turn with me to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, you can see exactly what, uh, what Paul did. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says, so when we could stand it no longer, how good is his passion, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we were destined for them. And then if you have a look at verse 6, but Timothy has just now come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. So they didn't have internet. They didn't have text messages. They couldn't just give him a phone call. What did he do? sent Timothy to go and see how they were going. Timothy's just come back. And the first thing Paul wants to do after Timothy has come back is, I want to write a letter. Can I write to my little baby church and to encourage them? And that's the letter that we're going to be looking at over the next, uh, the next number of weeks. So here's our letter. How does it begin? Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter one and verse one. Paul, Silas and Timothy. So it's a little missionary crew Uh, the three of them there, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Well, what do we notice from this opening that we would normally breeze past? The first thing is uh, something that I mentioned when we looked at it in Ephesians as well. The greeting is grace and peace. Grace, good favor from God, peace, right relationship with God and with one another church what does paul want for you grace and peace it's the gospel the good news he spoke and the greeting to a christian church grace and peace so that's the way he opens but i want you to see something that's almost incidental in the way we just kind of just roll straight past it remember that this is so early this is 51 ad jesus has only been dead probably for less than 20 years Have a listen to the way Paul writes to this church. He says uh, in verse 1 there, to the church of God, uh, to the Church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we kind of go, oh yeah, whatever. Not whatever. See, people today will tell us that the church invented the divinity of Jesus later. Here we have the earliest piece of Christian communication, and what it says is as a church in God the Father and Jesus Christ. Can you see that? Is Jesus considered to be divine? Of course he is, right from the start, almost from the very first lines recorded in the whole of the New Testament. Is Jesus divine? Yes, he is. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does it mean when the church is in God? Well, in Athens, we're going to come back to... um, uh, to Acts chapter 17, a number of times. While Paul is in Athens waiting to hear back from Timothy, he spends uh, a lot of time looking around the city of Athens. And Acts chapter 17 goes on to tell us what he does in the city. So we're going to look a little bit at Acts chapter 17 in order to understand what's happening in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, As Paul was there, he says this. He says this to the people in, in, uh, in Athens. He says, God did this. So they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What Paul's saying is the church is in God inasmuch as it has its life from the living God. The church is in God. God formed the church. God sustains the church. He's the one who looks after it. So it's the church in God in the sense that he is its life and the the person who formed it. Now, what does Paul do? Well, he opens uh, with some words that tell uh, tell the church in Thessalonica what he's been doing. So he's just heard how they've been going and he wants to tell them what he's been doing. Have a look with me at verses two to three. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul say? Hey guys, while we've been apart, guess what I've been doing? I've been praying. I'm always mentioning you in my prayers. Can I say as a minister, I'm always humbled by... uh, by Paul's faithfulness. He's always mentioning everyone in his prayers, it seems, all the time. He's a relentless prayer. How beautiful. So he says to the church, hey, I've been praying to God for you, and here's what I've observed. Here's what I've been giving thanks for. I've been giving thanks for your new life. Now, we call our church here new life. And today I thought it would be helpful for you to see, what does a new life look like? Well, Paul says, here's what this baby church had been doing. They have faith towards God for what he has done in the past. So it says here, uh, your work produced by faith. So the first thing that a new life does is it changes its orientation from looking inward to looking outward. Where does the church look first? Well, it looks back to what God has done on the cross for them. So the work that they do is produced by faith, grounded in the fact that they are looking to what God has done for them in the past. So first thing is faith towards God for the past. The second thing a new life has is love towards others in the present. Love towards others in the present. And so Paul says, I have watched the way you care for one another. And Jesus says, You'll know where Christians buy our what? Hypocrisy? That was a joke, by the way. No one's joking. Okay. So they'll know where Christians buy our what? Anyone? Love. That's what Jesus says. They'll know we're Christians by our love. And so Paul says, I've actually seen it. I've seen your labor prompted by love. Love towards others in the present. So the first thing new life does is it has faith to look back to what God's done in the past. The second thing it has is love towards others in the present. The third thing a truly new life has is hope towards Jesus for the future. Hope towards Jesus for the future. Have a look, it says, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a hopeful church. It's a loving church. It's a faithful church. In fact, here at New Life, we've got some, uh, some values. If you look over here, well, as up on the screen. Uh, you can see we're into faith. One of our values is being faithful. We're into active engagement with the world around us. And so we have adventurous and compassionate, which are our works of love. And we also have a desire to be a church that will endure. Our enduring is inspired by our hope. Faith, love, and hope. The grounds for our values here uh, at New Life. And in fact, these three things, uh, John Calvin, a famous uh, uh, reformer, wrote, in, these, in this little summary here in verse 3, we have the br- uh, a brief definition of true Christianity. So what does a new life look like? Faith, love, hope. Beautiful. Can't find them anywhere else. One of the things that um, comes up in this passage next is a thing that uh, theologians refer to as election. And when we say that, you might be thinking of this. We were in Canberra recently, and we could not believe how many... I mean, Canberra's a political town. You know how we occasionally kind of see these up when it's kind of election time? man, go to Canberra. They are literally paving the entire place with corflute. It was extraordinary, the amount of effort that was going into the election there. We don't have to actually do any effort to be encouraged in our election. Have a look at verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He has elected you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how he lived among you for your sake. So what does Paul say? Firstly, you are loved and chosen by God. There are much worse things to hear today than that, aren't there? You are loved and you are chosen by God. How beautiful. He says, how do I know that you're loved and chosen by God? Three things. He says, God is at work in you by his power. So I've seen God's power at work changing you from being pagans to being made new. I've seen his power at work. I've seen the presence of the Holy Spirit take up residence in your heart. If you're a Christian, if you've truly been uh, transformed by God, God says, I will place my Holy Spirit in your heart. You can know the reality of the Holy Spirit's presence. So that's God with us. So Paul says, I've seen the power, I've seen the presence of the Holy Spirit, and then he's seen something that is a commitment that is deep and personal. So maybe today, as we sing, you're thinking, I love singing these songs, and I'm able to stand as a Christian. And then you go from here to your work world, to your family life, to your social uh, activities, and you find yourself on your own, and you think, when someone puts me under pressure, I crumple like a little wet piece of origami crumple in. I have no resilience, no strength, no ability to stand on my own. What Paul says here is, what I saw was the work of God. How do I know I saw it? I saw the power of a changed life. I saw the presence of the Holy Spirit, and I saw the personal deep conviction to say, I stand on this truth. What a joy. I stand on this truth. It is my truth deeply, personally, with great conviction. What a mark of a church that Paul was able to see. I love this picture. Um, I want to be like Dad. Uh, here's an imitation that happened in the churches around uh, around about. Have a look at verses uh, 5 and following. Uh, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God that he's chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power. And then he says, uh, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So the, the, the missionary grew, said, we came in, and instead of acting like pagans, what you decided to do was to be more and more like us, and in turn, to become more and more like God. You became imitators of God. Well, that ought to look a little bit different than paganism, you reckon? A distinctly different life was begun. And in fact, they didn't just become imitators of God. They didn't just take after the apostles. They actually took up that responsibility themselves. Have a look at verse seven. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. In other words, we looked at you and the church around, around the outside said, we want to be like those Thessalonians. We want to be like this church there. Now, Jeff and I were sort of chatting a little bit before, before the service and thinking, what about our church? We've got a brand new little church here, don't we? Is there anything happening here that we would say under God was worthy of being imitated? Look, honestly, I don't know. But isn't it a beautiful, beautiful hope that we might be so transformed by God that we might be able to be an example to be followed by others? Probably the first thing we need to do is say, hey, we know all the things that we've done wrong here. Please forgive us, Lord. Please keep changing us to be worthy of being imitated. But how gracious is God for the Thessalonian church? They were were a model. They were a model for others. I also want you to see how that impacted uh, the people around them. You remember this road, uh, the Agatian Way? Uh, Have a look at verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Archaea, your faith in God has become known everywhere, Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. So what's happened is here's this little church, a church born under persecution in a very brief period of time, that now has so got the message, that deep conviction, that passion, that empowering by the Holy Spirit, that they've decided we've got something that other people should hear about. And what did they do? Well, they used their geography. Where were they located? in a brilliant deep water port on the most busily travelled way in the whole of Macedonia. So what do we do? We'd better shut up shop and keep this good news to ourselves. No. That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? They were strategically located, and so the truth of the new life overflowed out of them into the entire region. They used their very specific part of their geography to bless the whole region. Now, I just want to suggest to you just have a little shoot the breeze with me here for a second uh down the road uh the council opened up a new building does anyone want to tell me why camden council chose to put their brand new building in Oran park anyone got any ideas uh yep mate it was almost free (laughs) i'm sure they paid some money Don't, don't doubt about that yeah it's right in the middle isn't it uh down there is going to be the centre of a town that we are told, oh, well, Tom, you upgraded me the other day. Is Tom here? No. So I'm ser- serving with the kids. He told me, we, we were working with a figure that was 25,000 people. Apparently, they've upgraded some of the high-density proposal of the future of the town. It's going to be 32,000 people here in Oran Park. Now, all I want to arg- just idly suggest to you is, do we have any ge- geographic advantage here? The whole of the southwest, there's going to be another 250,000 people coming into this area. We're at the southern hub of that area. Do you think we will bear any geographic uh, responsibility for seeing the gospel go out? Yeah? So I want you to see what this Thessalonian church does, and I want you to lift your eyes with me and think, what could we do? Our vision is to see new life in Jesus come to what? Does anyone know? Every home in... Oran Park and the growing Southwest for their salvation, for the good of the community, and for the glory of God. We want to see new life in Jesus to every home in Oran Park. Amen? And the growing Southwest for their salvation, the good of the community, and the glory of God. It is a burden on us, I believe, because of this extraordinary grace that has been shown to us to look beyond here to there. We have been given an incredible blessing, and we must not waste it. They used their geography. So what does this new life look like? What does it look like? We're going to have a look at Athens, where Paul's preaching to the Greeks there, and Thessalon- Thessalonica, and see what it looks like. Uh, Paul's wandering around Athens, and he says, uh, "Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, that's kind of a the head thinkers in, uh, in Athens, and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So they were praying to gods from Egypt, gods from Rome, gods from Greece, and they even had an altar to an unknown God. That's how religious they were. What does it look like when you turn aside to the living God in an environment that is totally shot through with gods like that. The best analogy I could come up with was a story that turned up in the news this week. Did did anyone see this? This is the parliament in Hong Kong. Uh, and They had an election. Um, Hong Kong has been resumed by China. So communist China rules over Hong Kong. And they were swearing in a new parliament. And this guy, uh, Mr. Lung, stood up as he took his oath to say, I am not swearing allegiance to China. I am saying that we need to be free, that we need to rule our own world. How do you think that went down with communist China? I think that what we see here are turning aside this, uh, this have a look at verse 9. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What does it look like when you turn aside from idols in Thessalonica? I think you're considered a threat to security. If the gods are not being appeased, then they might be angry with us. If we annoy Rome, we might lose our privileges. This Christianity is subversive, it upends the power structure. It says there's a king other than Caesar, it's radical. It's destabilizing, and I think that's why persecution broke out. Now, imagine us thinking about what we're doing here on Sunday as being radically subversive. We have to just stay awake, don't we? I mean, that's the the challenge. Are, Are we upsetting the political order? Are we doing something truly extraordinary here? I'm saying, yes, you are. You're installing Jesus as king. And whether you see it right now or later... What you are doing is profoundly revolutionary. As Paul wanders around, he talks to them about the God who really is there. Not the gods of stone, not the gods from Egypt, not the made-up gods. He talks about the God who's really there. Here's how he talks to the pagans in Athens. He says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. How many are there? There's only one. He says, the Lord who made heaven and earth, that is the God. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. Do you know what's standing behind him as he says that? The greatest temple in the ancient world on the Acropolis in in Athens, right? And by the way, God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. That's pretty confronting, isn't it? And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives life life and breath and everything it uh, gives to everyone life and breath and everything else from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out and appointed their times and histories and the boundaries of their lands there are not gods of egypt and gods of rome and gods of greece there is one god who is the god of the entire universe he made it and sustains it so what did the people in thessalonica do well they chose to not accept imitations they chose to not accept imitations. Have a look at what it says in, uh, in 9b. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve what God? Have a look what it says there in verse 9. The living and true God. Not an imitation. Not an image of stone. I want to encourage you today, church, accept no imitations. AstroTurf might look good. Might be all sorts of advantages in it. But nothing growing and living is happening there. It's a fake. It's not the real thing. We must accept no imitations when it comes to God. And then Paul goes on he says, Actually, this God who really exists, you need to know something about him. In the past, God, God overlooks such ignorance, the fact that you're worshipping all these idols. He overlooks such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is a big deal. Paul is saying it's not just that you might miss a sacrifice, it's that when Jesus returns, you're going to be judged for your idolatry. Repent, he says. Now, we don't like waiting, do we? We don't like waiting. I, was, I, I said I was in Canberra the other day. I grew up in Canberra, and so I love these bus shelters. I just think they're really, really nice. They like the circles, and the, I like that. But I don't like waiting in a bus shelter. Have a listen to what the Thessalonians are doing with their new hope. Have, have a look at verse 10. They they. They turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. What do we need to know? Jesus is the son of God. Jesus was raised to life again. The only person who's ever happened to on their own. See, Jesus raised people to life. Yeah. So resurrection happened before, but dead people haven't spontaneously come to life again. That's Jesus. And God proves that Jesus is the one who will judge the world because he raised him from the dead. It's worth noting he's returning. You might not know this. Because he lives forever, he will return. And when he returns, uh, he is going to return to those who are waiting for him. On that day, there will be a choice that you have already made. You will either be ready for his return and greet it with joy or you will be terrified because you will be meeting your judge. But make no mistake, he is returning. And his faithful church will wait till that day. Thessalonica, this church, is a vital church. And we know that because they turned from idols. We know that because they were serving the living God. We know that because they were waiting expectantly for Jesus' return. And we know that because they were praying that God might make use of their geographic opportunity to proclaim the good news to the world around them. Are we under pressure? I want to say we are. How will we stand firm? Same way. The same way the Thessalonians did. They received a letter, and over the coming weeks, you and I are going to receive one too. May God enable us to stand firm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this word, this message that got through to these struggling believers in Macedonia. I thank you so much, Father, that you had sustained them, that you kept them speaking about Jesus, turning from idols, serving and loving one another. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us here in Australia I think today particularly of your church in Syria and China. We thank you, Father, that they will not be without your word. They will not be without your Holy Spirit. And they are not outside of your will. Bless and sustain your church as we wait for your return. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.